welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Danielle George, and joining me, as always, is Marianne O'Hotter. Hello, yes. So this is the podcast that's all about discovering the best ways to improve your science communication game. There's loads of reasons you might want to do this. Uh, You might feel like it's your civic duty as a public servant and a scientist. It might be nice for your friends and family to actually know what you do. You might want to build confidence, make contacts or secure loads of dosh for your next piece of research. And of course, you might even find it fun. So fun and imagination are the themes of this week's episode. We're going to be talking about comedy, working with children and using art to communicate research. It's also about discussing the idea of how making science fun or creative can be perceived by other people. So I'll kick things off with our first guest. So the first person I'd like to introduce you to is Dominic Walliman. He's a quantum physicist by training, but is now a full-time science communicator. He writes a science book series for kids called Professor Astro Cat, which is brilliant. And he produces the YouTube channel Domain of Science. And this is why he set up his YouTube channel. When I say I'm a physicist, the first thing that so many people say is, oh, I was never good at science in school. And it sticks with people and it's because they did a test and they felt bad because they didn't do well at a test. But the thing is, as we grow older, as we grow up, our brains change and our interests change. And it's never too late for people to learn science if they're interested in it. And that's the focus of my YouTube channel, which is to increase the accessibility of more advanced topics. And I talk about things in a way that is aimed at grown-ups. And for that, I really want to increase science literacy in the world. And so I want to inspire people, entertain people with my videos, and also hopefully reach a wider audience and explain concepts, make it less intimidating so that more people understand Mm. how cool it is. Absolutely. Amen to that. I was also interested in what inspires him to do science communication for children too. My motivation for that was to give kids a really positive experience of science before they hit, get hit with some of the drudgery of school work. Mm. And I think, so in school, I really didn't like GCSE science. I got really bored of it. I was quite good at it, but I got really bored of it and I dropped it. And um, so I nearly didn't do science at university I nearly didn't study physics. And the reason I got back into it was actually from a TV show about the universe and a, a tie-in book that went with it. And it was so inspiring because they were talking about the most amazing stuff about the the universe. I just really wanted to find out more. And that's what really inspired my love of, of astrophysics to begin with. And I got into physics through that. Mm. So, so that's kind of what I want to do with the kids' books is have the kids interact with science in a way that it's not um, centered around tests. And so there's not that um, question of whether you're good at at it or bad at it because of this score that you get on Mm. this stressful situation, which is that you have to learn this stuff and you have to pass this test and we're going to judge you on how good you are at the science based on how well you do at this test. If kids get engaged with science on their own terms before that, and see it in the context of just a love of finding things out with some fun characters and some humour. And it's just a fun experience. I feel like that hopefully will stay with them even if they get discouraged later on. 
Oh, that's really nice. So are there, are there common mistakes that people would make uh, when they're trying to communicate to children? The thing that I keep on making the mistake of, which I think is a pit, pit trap that everyone falls into, which is just assuming too much knowledge. Because when you've learned something, you totally take for granted what you've learned to mm. such an extent that you can't even see what it's like to not know that thing. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the trick is, especially when we're communicating to kids, but this applies to any audience, is to put yourself in the shoes of that person who's approaching that subject matter the first time. And to do that, you need to not use technical language that they don't know, because that immediately throws them off. And the second thing is to find out the terms that they do know already that you can use to explain the thing you're trying to explain. So you have to form what you're saying in the terms that they already understand. Okay, so I'm, I'm really interested in this, Dominic. So is it clarity over accuracy as a strategy? So it's better not to confuse them than to give sort of very complicated stories. Is that the idea? Yeah, so the idea, and it's a bit of a balancing act, but the temptation is to be perfectly technically accurate. The trouble with that is that technically correct explanations tend to be quite detailed and quite mm. long. And so by the time you've actually got to the point of what you're saying, you've lost your audience. And so there's a balance where it's better to give an explanation that might be technically incorrect, but it's concise enough and it's explained in the terms that the person understands so that they can get a handle on what you're explaining to begin with. And we, and we kind of do this in education. So when we learn about atoms, we learn several different models for the atom along the way. And if you've just got thrown straight into the quantum mechanics of, you know, the structure of atoms, <laughs> no one would ever be able to learn it. So, yeah. so we do do this already, but I think this is a general principle, which is quite useful. So I'm going to try and put you on the spot now, if that's all right. Um, yeah. A complicated idea. Let's take the Big Bang. Okay. Your love of astrophysics as well. Um, <laughs> imagine I'm a seven-year-old. How do you okay. explain what the Big Bang is to me? Okay. So have you ever wondered where all of this stuff comes from? Did it even come from somewhere or did it always exist? It's hard to know. So how would we find out? Well, we can look out into space and we can gather... Uh, information from the light that comes from stars. And what's fascinating about space is when you look to distant stars and beyond that, distant galaxies, galaxies are collection, big collections of stars, you're actually looking further and further back into the past. And the reason is it takes time for that light to get from those stars to get to us. And so every time you look deeper and deeper and deeper into space, you're actually kind of time traveling because you're seeing things that happened further in the past. And we actually, when we do all of this and we collect all of that information, we can piece together a puzzle. And that puzzle tells us that there's actually a start to the universe. And that start to the universe we call the Big Bang. Now, we don't know exactly what happened there. But what we do know is that a long, 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 long time in the past, all of the stuff in the universe was a lot closer together. In fact, it was all crammed together into a tiny size 
the size of a tennis ball or the size even smaller than that of an ant or, or an atom. And then everything very fast expanded out from that and that's where everything came from. But it's still a mystery what actually caused that. And if you're a kid right now, actually, that might be a puzzle that you wanna, might want to try and figure out. Maybe you'll be the person to work it out. Danielle, I absolutely love that. because It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's an explanation that makes me feel good about myself because I understand it. It makes me feel excited about the science he's describing and eager to know more. And it's it's scientists at its best, I think. You know, if you can explain the Big Bang to children and they're enthused by that and, and they want to maybe find out more about it, I think that's brilliant. But I did want to chat to him about how working with children has sometimes been criticised by colleagues, you know, like like some of my colleagues, um, in dumbing down the science. So, so I asked Dominic about it. Um, do you ever feel that people undervalue your work because it's for children or for the non-scientists amongst us? Because I get this quite a bit if I do something in public speaking or I do something for, for children and, and talk about my science. Some colleagues in the past have sort of said, oh, you're a sellout now, you're dumbing your subject down. And I really feel like I'm not dumbing it down because, you know, I'm just making it accessible to, to children. Uh, but do you ever feel that people do undervalue your work? I think I've been really fortunate that I've never really hit that. I mm. think the people who I've interacted with um, since I've started the YouTube channel understand the importance of science communication. And from the kids' books, I never really had much pushback because... I mean, there's not much you can criticize about it, really. So I'm surprised, actually, that you're getting this pushback from people. Uh, I think that's really sad mm. because, because that's exactly what's going to... Why limit science to be only communicated to a certain group of people who are allowed to understand it because they've already learned the terms I, I don't know it's so it's boggles my mind that people would would say things like that yeah. so mm, absolutely. yeah there's an explanation out there for every single audience that's how that's what i believe I was really um heartened by the fact he he doesn't seem to have received a lot of criticism as well you know about the way he's explaining to children and making science accessible to children i think that's a really positive thing for science communication now, do you think that's because he's a man or do you think it's because he's not a professional research scientist anymore and so he's kind of not having to juggle both sides of, of sort of credibility? Yeah, I think it's maybe the latter. It's the, it's the credibility with your peers, you know, and, and the amazing work that Dominic does, you know, it, it is for children. You know, he said it out that it is science, communicating science for children. Um, or make it accessible to the public. And other people who are more research-based communicating their science, I think maybe that's when we get a bit more criticism. So if people are facing these criticisms for doing science communication work with an outreach audience, why do they carry on doing it? Why not just give it up? Well, I think people see it as a, a good thing to do. You know, it, it, it is really fun. You know, it, it challenges me in a, in, a, in a different way, a completely different way. And I've, I find that quite exhilarating. 
So I think people do it for the fun element, for the sort of personal challenge element. And also it's just, I, I mean, I think it's just really, really important. And we are seeing now that research councils, so the people who fund our research um, in the UK, are now seeing it much more in a, in a positive way. So they can see the positive impact of good science communication. And now in our applications, when we're writing to, to request more funding for our research, then we have to say what the positive impact would be of our research and how you're going to communicate that impact with a, um, a non-specialist audience. So I think that's a really good thing. Danielle, what makes you laugh? Oh, um, most things that, that my daughter does, actually, she, she makes me laugh quite a lot. Um, <laughs> I do quite like seeing, you know, when children throw temper tantrums and you're like, right, don't <laughs> laugh, don't laugh, because it's not meant to be funny. And, and uh, you know, so I do quite like seeing that, especially if it's other people's children who are doing it. Like, oh, don't absolutely. Laugh. <laughs> Our next guest, Professor Sophie Scott, is a neuroscientist and senior fellow at University College London. And she studies laughter. Not what's funny, but specifically actually the production and perception of these strange, emotionally laden noises that we make. If you understand laughter you can start to understand power dynamics. You can start to understand how people influence each other and what makes human relationships work or fail. So that could be within a family, it could be amongst colleagues in a workplace situation, or even between world leaders with nuclear buttons at their fingertips. She told me this story of absolutely powerful laughter in action. There's a clip you can see on YouTube of a meeting between Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton back in the 1990s when there was everything was kicking off in the former USSR about their involvement in the, the, the conflict in former Yugoslavia. And Yeltsin was having a series of very disagreeable uh, conversations with foreign leaders and with the press about this. And he came out of a summit with Bill Clinton looking furious and started berating the press through an interpreter. And Bill Clinton is basically waits for the first opportunity he can to laugh. He watches Yeltsin like a hawk. And the first thing that he picks up on, and all it is, is literally Boris Yeltsin says his name. And he uses that as a reason to laugh. And then, but he doesn't look like he's laughing at Yeltsin. He's like laughing like, ha, 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 you know, that is my name. And then from that point on, he starts behaving as if everything that Yeltsin is saying is in fact hilarious and very witty. And at <sighs> first... It just gets a smile out of Yeltsin, but it starts to make the audience laugh, the press corps and the people there. And in the end, it then starts to make Yeltsin laugh. And you can see Yeltsin sort of, yeah, I am very funny. This is very witty. And what was an angry, probably slightly drunk man berating the foreign press becomes hilarious. And it's often kind of used as an example of, oh, look at Bill Clinton getting the giggles. And absolutely not. That is a very strategic deployment of laughter, incredibly effectively. So at no point did he looked like he was laughing at Yeltsin. And of course, it mattered totally that he was a very senior person there. If someone in the press corps had started really laughing that way, it would have gone badly. So, you know, he's using his position of power to reframe the whole situation in a positive way and in a way that's entirely driven by how he used laughter. So I think that, you know, from like tiny interactions you might have with someone you bump into in the street through to this kind of massively important leadership roles, 
laughter can be, it doesn't have to always, you know, it's not like it always makes everything better and is always appropriate, but it can be one of the more effective ways that we have of sort of reframing situations and managing stressful situations in a way that is, if everybody buys into it, can sort of be very effective in regulating emotions in a, in a more positive direction. But here's the thing about Sophie. She doesn't just study laughter. She also creates it because she does stand-up comedy on the side. I wanted to know how she got into it. Well, it came about because UCL, University College London, where I'm based, oh, goodness me, probably about 10 years ago now, 11 years ago, started a a new drive to do public engagement from UCL. And it was based around running these events called Bright Clubs, which were stand-up comedy nights. The whole thing was the brainchild of a guy called Steve Cross, who worked at UCL at the time. And all of the performers, except for the MC and the, the headline act, would be researchers, students, academics from UCL. And when it first started, I heard about it and I thought, people must be out of their minds. You know, I've worked really, really hard to get where I am. I'm not going to go and stand in a pub where a load of strangers don't laugh. You know, I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> and then, so I avoided it at all costs. And then a, a senior male, someone basically at the same kind of level as seniority as myself, was telling me how he'd he'd done Bright Club and how it was brilliant and everyone laughed loads. And I thought, you bastards, you haven't even asked me. <laughs> you bastards, you haven't asked me. Um, <laughs> So then I was like, oh, I'll totally do that. And then I ended up doing it. And I, I probably, I cannot remember a time I've got more stress before a talk. It kind of took me back to school days, level of stress. And then really, all I could think afterwards was I want to do that again and I want to do it better. I really enjoyed it and I wanted to learn how to do it so I could do it again and, and get better at doing it. So I found it, um, I found it a very positive experience. And paradoxically, I learned a lot about laughter from sort of engaging in that. So it's been quite useful scientifically as well. Why, why should scientists consider trying comedy? Um, I would say probably for several reasons. First of all, just saying that you've done it is extraordinary. Just having done it, putting yourself through that thing that you did not need to do. Um, you do kind of feel afterwards like I could do anything. And my my, my partner, who's a, a scientist based in Cambridge, um, I mean, he said the same thing. He'd, he, he did Bright Club and so you know a couple of times and then he had a he went to give a talk in edinburgh and he had one of those absolute nightmares where the train was late and he would it ended up being met on the platform of the train by someone who then there wasn't even time to get in the taxi they just he, they just ran across edinburgh and he was thrown on a stage and had his talking meet started immediately and he said i knew as long as i got there i'd be okay because i've done comedy and i can deal with anything <laughs> and it does oh, kind of get wow. you, you just it, and it gives you that sort of confidence as well like you know I can own this stage I will make you laugh you know that, that's actually a very powerful thing to learn um so I try and get my PhD students or my um postdocs to do it if possible because it's such a I mean empowering is a terrible word but actually it genuinely is empowering to kind of feel that you know I can do that and I, and I mean most academic talks it's not appropriate for people to be screaming with laughter all the way through it's not what they're expecting and nor would they want it but um I mean, I had a talk go completely wrong on me with the AV. I, and it was one of those ones where you've just set it all up, it's fine. And then a couple of slides in, you realise things are going wrong. And then they got worse and worse. And about 10 minutes in, I could see the audience was stressing out. I was stressing out because the computer wasn't working, was just failing to connect at all. Um, so I just closed the computer and did the whole rest of the talk without slides. And then that point where I was realising I was going to have to make that decision, if I hadn't had the experience of stand-up comedy, I would have had an absolute meltdown along with the audience. Instead, because I had done comedy, 
I had a thing I could fall back on to kind of make them feel a little bit calmer while I was working out what to do next, you know? So it was very, very useful having that as a thing to bring out to just get through a difficult situation when you're in front of an audience and things are not going to plan. It's also very rewarding. I think that's the other thing. It's, there's nothing quite like audience laughter. You completely understand why people get totally hooked on the idea of doing stand-up comedy because there's a point when you come off stage. I mean, the first time I did it, I ca- people laughed, which is nice, and I came off and then the, the stand-up comic who was the MC went back on stage and went, ladies and gentlemen, Sophie! And the audience clapped and I was like, you guys can carry on doing this for as long as you want to. I'm, I'm getting pure <laughs> dopamine thing sort of jetted into my nucleus accumbens. It's so rewarding. So there's that as well. You know, it does, it's a very interesting skill to learn and it is a really rewarding skill to learn. In the moment, if the audience laugh, bearing in mind, there will be times when they don't. But if they do, it's wonderful. Danielle, if we were not in the middle of a global pandemic, this study shows would be sending you on the stage to do stand-up, you know, for our listeners to understand the process more. Oh, blimey, right. A, a positive from the global <laughs> pandemic then. <laughs> it would fill me with dread what Sophie does. I have so much respect for her. I'm I'm a professional presenter, but I also have never done stand-up. And the idea of it, just putting yourself on the spot like that yeah. and saying, not only am I here to be interesting, I'm also going to be funny. Oh, yeah. Shall I, tell you my one, shall I tell you my one science joke that I've got? Yeah, go on, go on. You have, you have to laugh, okay. Why did... <laughs> no, af- after I do the joke. <laughs> She's good. I okay. mean, I'd come and see you. <laughs> right. Why did Mrs. Ohm marry Mr. Ohm? I don't know. Why oh, no, I've said it wrong Ohm already. Have... I've said it wrong already. See, this is how oh. I wish I'd be. Why did Mr. Ohm mar- marry Mrs. Ohm? I don't know. Because he couldn't resist her. <laughs> that's really bad <laughs> I mean like made funnier because of the time delay on our video conferencing call <laughs> but still I don't know I'm throwing tomatoes at you girl sorry oh boo you see that's why it's it would terrible. be my idea of my worst day ever one final thing from Sophie I wanted to know whether her work in science communication has ever been looked down upon I think it varies a lot. Um, there's something called the Carl Sagan effect, which was with Carl Sagan, who was a very, was very keen on sort of pushing forward public engagement with science or science communication in America in the 70s and 80s. And he was a very, very productive scientist, but he was blackballed from the Academy of Sciences in the US because of his public engagement work. He was seen as sort of trivial. And someone recently did the same, a study of this in um, neuroscientists to see, does this still happen? And it is true that the more public engagement work someone does in the neurosciences, the more their peers think that their research is silly or trivial, you know, not less good. So I think it is, it's something that the, probably the biggest effect you could have would be changing the mindset of the people that are closest to us because it's they're the ones who actually think that it's, uh, you know, you're, if you do lots of this stuff, then you must be a less good scientist. Whereas in fact, what you find is, and this is borne out by the study, that actually the more public engagement stuff people do, they tend to do lots of other stuff as well. They tend to publish more scientific papers. They tend to give more talks because people that do a lot of things tend to do a lot of everything. You know, it's a, it's a belief that people have about their peers that do a lot of science, public communication work, which actually is not correct. So again, you just have to turn it around. So I 
I do lots of public engagement work. I'm not apologetic about it. And I also do loads of really, really difficult, boring science work as well as interesting science work. So I, you know, I continue to publish. I just published a paper last year, which would make you cry if I started talking about it, about a model of auditory processing, you know. So I'm, people can still choose to consider my work to be bad if they want to, but I'm fairly comfortable. I'm doing both well. I'm doing good science communication and I'm also just doing good science. Okay, Marianne, I'd like to introduce you to another creative way of communicating science. This is called graphic medicine. Ooh. It's a field that was founded by Dr. Ian Williams, who was both a doctor and a comic artist. And he coined this term graphic medicine to explain the role that comics play in the study and the delivery of healthcare. So it's this interaction of comics and healthcare where the sort of art meets science. This could be graphic novels, it could be posters, it could be leaflets. And I got a chance to talk to an expert in this field. Satharaj Ventication studies the impact of this kind of science communication. I started off asking him who graphic medicine is for. The simple answer is it's for everyone who is interested and invested in health, illness and wellness. For instance, you know, let's start with the practitioners. Mm. You know, how does it help practitioners and pre-medical students, if you will? So uh, I believe graphic medicine offers insights into the experiential realms of illness and health, which are often not studied uh, under biomedicine or medical you know, context. So in this sense, reading graphic medicine triggers moral ethical, and non-medical imagination. For uh, students or someone uh, who is suffering from the disease, graphic medicine would be a ready reckoner, which offers them with certain advice, a diagnostic advice or treatment options, coping and prognosis through the author's experience. And it also helps the patients in a different way. For instance, it minimizes feelings of isolation. They understand that they are not alone in that illness experience. So it helps them to minimize the isolation, as it were. Yeah. If people want to do it themselves, so if our listeners would like to Mm -hmm. to get involved in this, do they have to be good artists? Because all of the ones I've seen have got amazing graphics. Do you have to be a good artist to do it? This is an amazing question and my answer to this is you need not be a professional artist. Mm. In fact, most of the contributors to graphic medicine as a movement, as a community, are people who have no professional background in comics creation. So Mm. they are sketches, they are scratches, they are just stick figures. (laughs) So they just still communicate the unsaid aspects of illness. So my answer or simple answer is anyone can be a graphic medical artist. Brilliant. Everybody should have a go. That's good. Um, (laughs) But it has got that sort of very creative side to it, hasn't it? And like you say, the sort of stick figures or, you know, however you're going to draw them. Is it hard to convince people that something that is, you know, stick figures and, and things like that, is also very practical and very, very informative. That's correct, you know. So the assumption that we usually make is something creative is less informative. So there is always this assumption, which I call it as art bias. 
a bias towards art that is very strong among public and particularly among scientists and physician communities. So we have to understand that it's possible that we can put, uh, you know, creativity and information in conjunction. I believe that would engage and create a greater impact than dealing with raw, cold and storyless data. But there are, I mean, some of, some of the comics or mo- most of the comics, you know, in, in whatever way they're drawn, some of them are quite haunting. You know, there's some really hard-hitting subjects. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and many people, I guess, would be used to comics being more humorous than, than that. Yeah. Is that something that, um, that people are okay with or does it put them off? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a very misplaced assumption. Not all comics are comedic. Mm. You know, humor is just one aspect of comics. If you were to look at the history of comics, early 19th and 20th century, most of the comics were in some sense very serious. They were dealing with the day-to-day issues, you know, especially the immigration of Irish into America, Mm. you know, the poverty, the questions of urbanity that America was getting used to and so on, the urban problems. So humor is just one aspect of comics. The second part of it is also about how comics creates that kind of a space to think about very serious taboo issues like abortion and so on. Mm. So it works on either ways because uh, there is that playfulness which is given to comics. You know, it helps that playfulness to articulate the serious issues like abortion. So that is... I believe, very interesting aspect of, you know, uh, comics. Um, I was reading one of your papers, Sat, in, in which you talked about the valuable role that, that graphic medicine um, plays. And, and a couple mm-hmm. of things you said was uh, reflecting or changing cultural perceptions of medicine and enabling discussion of difficult subjects. And you've, you've explained both of them really well. Do you think it's transferable to other subjects, so not medicine? So let's say something like climate change or, you know, something that some people find difficult to to understand. Yeah. So there are uh, uh, groups, you know, just like graphic medicine group, there is something called graphic social justice, which deals with these kinds of issues Hmm. in very particular ways like climate change, environment, social justice, health justice, and so on. And Mm. one good thing about comics, as I mentioned, is its ability to foreground those issues which has always been a taboo subject. There is this very interesting book which I am looking forward. This is Menopause by uh, M.K. Servick, who is also called Comics Nurse. So this is very interesting. The entire book uses uh, comics, but she deals with a much hushed up you know, a taboo subject like, you know, menopause. Mm. And I think uh, the language of comics really has that potential, you know, to give shape to these kinds of issues. How important is it in in trying to communicate medicine, healthcare, um, using this method? I mean, is it is it a nice to have or is it is it truly fundamental that um, communicates in a way that just nothing else could? Uh, As I said, you know, every medium has its own strengths, opportunities and limitations. So one 
good thing about comics is its ability to communicate to everyone irrespective of age and irrespective of language barriers and so on precisely the reason why you see world health organization came with a number of covid-19 related comics and why do they use comics because it's one of the simplest form of communication it can engage everyone's attention and most importantly it can economize and cross the continents because i can understand comics you can understand mm. comics so everyone across the globe can understand comics the language of comics the lexicon of comics that's really nice yeah that idea that it sort of transcends cultures and countries boundaries and, cultures yeah. language yeah and so absolutely on. I think these examples of graphic medicine are fantastic because they start a conversation, a dialogue in your own head. And I, it puts me into kind of understanding the story, understanding people and the emotion mode rather than just, oh, I'm going to digest some information about this medical condition I have now. And it, it just uses a different bit of my brain. And I think it helps me understand it more as a person. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Danielle, I've learned so much in this episode. Uh, number yeah. one, you achieve nothing if you leave your audience behind from the beginning. Number two, if you really want to bomb-proof your psychom skills, you should do stand-up. And number three, <laughs> taboo subjects can be approached with a, an amazing, fresh perspective that shares information and allows emotional impact by using art and science. Yeah, I think they're brilliant. And I think for me, that take-home message of the things that are fun or imaginative, they aren't just nice things to have. They've got a really powerful impact. And in this type of impact that might not have otherwise been achieved with different different other types of communication. So I think they're really, really powerful. Yeah, broaden your perspective, change the world. Absolutely. That's what we're all about here at This Study Shows. Absolutely. Boom. <laughs> uh, that's it for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. You can catch up on any episode that you might have missed on your favourite podcast provider or visit thisstudyshows.com for more information about our podcast and how to find transcripts and videos. Thanks so much for listening to This Study Shows. See you next time. Bye. Bye. This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Marianne O'Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.